Hello! Welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these Trimba deadly ships. I'm Cassidy Griffin, and today we are going to DE Classify USS Richard M. Rowell. The USS Richard M. Rowell DE-403 was a John C. Butler-class or Westinghouse geared turbine drive destroyer escort. She was 306 feet long, 36 feet 10 inches wide, and had a heavy displacement of 1,745 tons. She had a range of 6,000 nautical miles at 12 knots or 13.8 miles per hour and a top speed of 24 knots or 27.6 miles per hour. She was equipped with two 5-inch 38 caliber guns four 40mm guns, 10 20mm guns, three 21-inch torpedo tubes, one Mark 10 Hedgehog, eight Mark 6 depth charge projectors, and two Mark 9 depth charge racks. For her service in the Pacific, she received six awards. A Combat Action Ribbon, the American Campaign Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with four stars, the World War II Victory Medal, and the Philippines Liberation Medal with two stars. The ship, like most DEs, is named after sailors who lost their lives in action. Richard Merrill Rowell was born in Sonoma, California on August 6, 1916. Two days after his 23rd birthday, Rowell enlisted in the Naval Reserves in 1939. A year later, on August 20, 1940, Rowell was commissioned an ensign. He reserved training as a fighter pilot and served aboard the USS Lexington CV-2, where he earned the Distinguished Flying Cross an award for acts of heroism or outstanding achievement in the face of danger while participating in aerial flight in February 1942 for downing a Japanese plane in the Pacific. Sadly, Rowell's last battle was the Battle of the Coral Sea, which took place from May 7th to May 8th, 1942. During this battle, he earned a gold star, a second decoration to his distinguished flying cross, before failing to return from this last mission. The Battle of the Coral Sea was the first major naval engagement in history that was decided without surface ships having exchanged a shot. The Japanese wanted to establish and secure an outer perimeter in the South Pacific to both ensure their own protection and deny Allies a base within rival Papua New Guinea's air range. The Japanese turned their attention to Port Moresby and began their operation on April 30, 1942. They began naval landings and airfield construction on Buka Island in Kieta, New Guinea. Tulagi, the capital of then-British-controlled New Guinea, only had 100 troops and an officer, while Tanimbogo, New Guinea, had a 50-person-strong signal staff. On May 1st, air attacks began for both Kavutu and Tanimbogo, New Guinea. On May 6th, Corregidor fell to the Japanese, and American troops were being pushed out of Burma. By May 7th, around Rabal, Japan had an occasional aircraft carrier, a submarine tender, three or more submarines, a seaplane tender, and several light cruisers, destroyers, and gunboats. To combat this, the Americans had two task forces centered around the aircraft carriers Lexington, CV-2, and Yorktown, CV-5. Task Force Fox remained in the Coral Sea after a March 10th attack on Lee and Salamoa, both cities in New Guinea. Task Force Baker was traveling back to Pearl Harbor when she was diverted to rejoin Fox in the Coral Sea. Baker followed the Lexington. These task forces made contact on May 1st, 200 miles west from Vanuatu, and both were placed under the command of Admiral Frank J. Fletcher. 
On May 2nd, a Yorktown scout plane spotted an enemy submarine 32 miles north of the U.S.'s formation. This sub was depth charged by three planes and possibly sunk, but not before the submarine relayed our position as revealed by intercepted messages. Both task force were sent towards Tulagi. At dawn on the 8th, the Americans decided to conduct a 360-degree search of the area, traveling up to 200 miles in the north and 150 miles in the south. The Lexington scouts took off at 0625. At 0820, Scouting Squadron 2 located two Japanese carriers, four heavy cruisers, and several destroyers 170 miles to the northeast. Intercepted messages revealed the Japanese spotted our planes almost immediately. At 0907, Admiral Fletcher handed over command to Admiral Albury W. Fitch. By this time, all scouts and bombers were taking off equipped with 1,000-pound bombs. The Japanese had an advantage, the weather. For the Americans, visibility was almost perfect and conditions held all day. For the Japanese, the visibility was around 2 to 15 miles with intermittent squalls throughout the day. Despite this, at 1032, Yorktown dive bombers spotted two enemy carriers followed by one battleship, three heavy cruisers, and four destroyers. As the bombers and scouts waited for the slower moving torpedo planes, one carrier was moving towards a squall and the other began launching their planes. Torpedo planes arrived around 10.58 and immediately launched a coordinated attack, hitting the formation six times surely and three times possibly. Three torpedoes hit the carrier, one on the port bow and two between midships and the bow. A dogfight began but Scouting Squadron 5 shot down four planes and Bombing Squadron 5 shot down another seven while damaging many others. Two Yorktown bombers were lost. By 1300, all planes were back aboard the Yorktown. The Lexington group was not as successful. Of the 12 torpedo planes, 18 dive bombers, 4 scouts, and 9 fighters. Three fighters lost contact with the group and returned to the ship. All 18 bombers failed to locate the enemy and returned, and one torpedo plane suffered from engine trouble. However, at 1057, 4 scouts and 11 torpedo planes attacked, dropping two 1,000-pound bombs and scoring 5 torpedo hits on the Zukaku, one of the Japanese aircraft carriers. Despite this success, the Lexington group suffered again when fuel shortages and enemy fighters decimated the number of pilots. This included the loss of a commander. The fuel shortages were so severe that seven torpedo planes coming in were unable to execute recognition maneuvers and were fired upon by the Yorktown. Neither Shikaku nor Zukaku had sunk, but Shikaku was severely damaged. In preparation for a counterattack, both the Yorktown and the Lexington adopted the circular Victor formation with both carriers in the center, Yorktown to the north. As the attack raged on, both carriers gradually grew apart from their maneuvering. By mid-morning, both carriers were miles apart. The Astoria, Portland, Chester, Russell, Hammond, and Alwyn stayed with the Yorktown, while the Minneapolis, New Orleans, Morris, Anderson, Phelps, and Dewey stayed with the Lexington. At 10.55, radar showed the enemy 68 miles out and fast approaching, and at 10.59, all planes on patrol were recalled to the carriers. At 11.02, the Lexington sent out five fighters. Two attacked torpedo planes five miles out, and the other three attacked a large enemy formation 20 miles out. At 11.08, four more Lexington planes were sent out and shot down several enemy planes in the vicinity of the ship. Yorktown fires shot down four Zeros and three dive bombers in addition to damaging several others. However, the majority of the planes shot down had already released their bombs. The Yorktown had three torpedoes passed closely by Port Quarter and one by Port Beam, 
One hit was received 23 feet forward of the number 2 elevator, 15 feet from the island structure around 1124. This round pierced the flight deck, hangar deck, and the second deck, then exploded in the aviation room, killing 37 men. This explosion caused the radar to stop working around 1131 before coming back online around 1222. At 1120, the Lexington was hit by a torpedo, exploding just forward of the forward port gun gallery. At 1121, another torpedo hit opposite the bridge. Around this time, a third hit, a thousand pound bomb, hit the forward port gun gallery, killing the entire number six gun crew and killing 13 men from guns number two and four. The bomb passed through the main passageway on the main deck, killing several more men. The explosion of this bomb also set off some of the five-inch gun ammunition, causing a fire in the gun galley, admiral's cabin, and the surrounding admiral's country. Another bomb, possibly around 500 pounds, hit the gig boat pocket on the port side, followed by another smaller bomb hitting and exploding inside the smokestack. In addition to these hits, two large caliber bombs hit near the port side, tearing holes in the hull. The ship began listing six degrees to port, but despite this damage, the Lexington was still moving at about 25 knots or 29 miles per hour. By 1240, the ship was on an even keel, three fires were out, and the last fire in Admiral's country was under control. However, just seven minutes later, another explosion ripped through the ship, causing fires in the CPO passageway around the gunnery office on the second deck. At the moment, the crew believed it was a sleeper bomb, but further analysis points to small gasoline leaks causing vapors to pool below deck, which were set off by a spark. Hoses were brought in, but more small explosions occurred below deck, either due to the vapors or 5-inch gun ammunition. At 1452, the task force commander was informed the fire was not under control, and at 1456, the Lexington signaled for help. According to Captain Sherman, additional explosions were occurring. It was reported that the warheads on the hangar deck had been at a temperature of 1400 degrees Fahrenheit. Ready bomb storage was in the vicinity of the fire, and I considered there was a danger of the ship blowing up at any minute. At 1707, Admiral Fitch directed Captain Sherman to abandon ship, with the Anderson, Hammond, and Morris moving in to take on the Lexington's crew. The Minneapolis and the New Orleans stood by for assistance. In the beginning, crew was transferred ship to ship, but due to the ship's worsening listing, crews eventually had to be picked up from the ocean using rope or motor rail boats. At 1750, another explosion paused these efforts as ships moved to avoid flaming debris. The Hammond was not so lucky, and debris fouled the main circulating pumps, preventing the ship from reversing. At 1810, Captain Sherman and Commander Seelgman made the final inspection and found several men manning a gun mount in the starboard aft. The men refused to leave their posts until ordered, and all men were transferred to the Minneapolis. At 1853, the Phelps was given the task of sinking the Lexington and fired five torpedoes between 1915 and 1952. In 1952, the Lexington sunk 500 miles off Australia's east coast. No men were lost during the abandonment, and all but 26 officers and 190 men, including Richard M. Rowell, of the total 2,951 men were accounted for. Admiral Fletcher's earlier decision to retire resulted in saving the lives of 92% of Lexington's personnel, a large portion of which would have been lost if the attack group had not been present when the ship sank. In the end, the U.S. lost the Lexington Neosha and the Sims, 66 aircraft and 543 men. 
Despite the massive loss of personnel planes in the Lexington, Coral Sea is regarded as a decisive victory for the United States and the Allied powers with far-reaching consequences. For his bravery during the Battle of the Coral Sea, Richard M. Rowell was chosen to be the namesake of DE-403. On August 18, 1943, the future USS Rowell's keel was laid down by Brown Shipping Company in Houston, Texas. On November 17th of the same year, she was launched and christened, sponsored by Mrs. Agnes M. Rowell. On March 9, 1944, she was commissioned with Lieutenant Commander Harry A. Bernard Jr. in command. After her shakedown in the Bermuda, she was sent to the Northeast. She departed Boston on May 6th and proceeded through the Panama Canal to San Diego, then Pearl Harbor, arriving May 31st. In July 1944, she escorted a convoy to Eniwetokatal in the present-day Marshall Islands and trained escort carriers to Pearl Harbor. In the next month, she escorted convoys to Delogi in the Solomon Islands and screened escort carriers in Manus, Papua New Guinea. On September 15, 1944, she protected an air support task force during the landings on Moratai Maluku Islands, then Dutch East Indies, saving two pilots from enemy attack. She was still around Moratai on October 3, 1944. In the morning, her fleet was attacked by the Japanese submarine RO-41. The USS Sheldon DE-407 was hit by a torpedo while in a screening position around the USS Fanshawe Bay CVE-70 and USS Midway CVE-41. The explosion caused the main deck aft to bend upwards at a 45-50 to 50 degree angle. The Rowell, upon seeing the Sheldon's hit, gave chase the RO-41 and dropped three depth charges. The Sheldon began to experience flooding and lost sound and radio power, but managed to visually signal to the Rowell for assistance. The Rowell received the Sheldon's critically wounded via motor whaleboat. Initially it was believed the Sheldon could be saved, but without the necessary equipment or ship available to tow, the Sheldon was abandoned. The Rowell was given the task to scuttle the Sheldon using gunfire, but this order was cancelled. The Sheldon capsized and sank approximately 52 miles off North Malaku's east coast. The Rowell and planes from the Midway continued to search for RO-41. The Rowell launched a series of depth charge attacks, but the submarine was able to leave the area undetected. However, the Rowell and the pilots began to unknowingly target an American submarine, the USS Seawolf SS-197. The USS Seawolf was a Sargo-class submarine with four 21-inch torpedo tubes forward, four aft, 24 torpedoes, and one 3-inch 50-caliber deck gun. She had a max speed of 21 knots or 24 miles per hour. She was laid down on September 27, 1938 by the Portsmouth, New Hampshire Navy Yard. She was launched on August 15, 1939, sponsored by Edward C. Calvis, and on December 1, 1939, she was commissioned with Lieutenant Frederick B. Warder in command. She departed Portsmouth on April 12, 1940, and headed to the Panama Canal Zone. In the fall of 1940, she traveled to Manila Bay. She went on her first war patrol in the day after Pearl Harbor until December 26, 1941. During this first patrol, she hunted Japanese shipping vessels. On December 14, 1941, she fired her torpedoes at a tender or supply ship around Port San Vicente with unknown results. Another Japanese ship retaliated and she underwent her first depth charge attack but suffered no damage. After this patrol, she left Manila on December 31, 1941 
and arrived in Port Darwin on January 9, 1942, where she was loaded up with up to 40 tons of 50 caliber anti-aircraft ammunition for American forces on Corregidor. While on this journey, she spotted seven Japanese freighters, four destroyers, and a cruiser, but did not have an opportunity to fire. On January 28th, she arrived in Corregidor, and over the next day, the ammunition was unloaded. She was reloaded with torpedoes, and she left for Surabaya, Java on February 15, 1942. She patrolled the Java Sea, Lambuk Strait. On the 19th, she fired four torpedoes at two Japanese freighter transports, and one appeared to be listening to starboard when last seen. On the 26th, she fired her torpedoes at another freighter and hit the bow of the ship. Later, she fired at an escorting destroyer who launched their depth charges. In March, the Sea Wolf remained around Java and Christmas Islands. On the 31st, she fired a spread at a cruiser, producing an explosion. The convoy reacted and the Sea Wolf suffered from over seven hours of depth charge attacks. The next day, she attacked two cruisers, causing an explosion but no fire. In mid-May, she began patrolling the Philippines Islands, where she remained until July 2, 1942. On May 20th and 23rd, and on June 12th, 13th, 15th, and 28th, she attacked freighters. On June 15th, she sunk the converted gunboat Nampo Maru. On July 25th, she began another patrol around Sulu and Celebes until September 15th. During this patrol, she attacked the tanker on August 3rd, sunk the Hajijin Maru on August 14th, and sunk the Showa Maru on August 25th. Early in October 1942, she arrived in Davao Gulf, where she remained until December 1st. In November, she sank three Japanese ships, Gifu Maru on the 2nd, Sagami Maru on the 3rd, and Kiko Maru on the 8th. After this patrol, she traveled back to Pearl Harbor, then to Mare Island, where she underwent refitting until February 24, 1943. She began another patrol on April 3rd. Over the next month, she torpedoed the Kaihai Maru, sank patrol boat number 39, and sank two 75-ton sandpans with her deck gun. She returned from patrol early on May 3rd after using all of her torpedoes. Two weeks later, she departed from Midway and headed for the East China Sea, where she was her most successful. She patrolled from Formosa to Nagasaki. On June 4th, she tracked a convoy of 11 ships and fired a spread of torpedoes at a freighter, with one being a dud and another passing underneath the freighter and hitting an escort ship. On the 18th, she fired at four ships, hitting the Shojimaru stern, which sank within nine minutes before her men could abandon ship. She began another patrol of the East China Sea on August 14, 1943. During this shortened trip, she sank almost 13,000 tons of enemy shipping and made contact with a six-ship convoy on August 17. She attacked this convoy for three days before surfacing to sink the Fusimaru with her deck gun on August 20th. For her next patrol from October 5th to November 27th, she moved to the South China Sea where she sank the Wuhumaru and the Kaifuku Maru and damaged a 10,000-ton cargo ship. Around Christmas, she returned to the East China Sea. On January 10th through 11th, 1944, she sank three ships of a seven-ship convoy, totaling 19,710 tons. On January 14th, she fired her last four torpedoes at two merchant ships, sinking the Yamatsuru Maru. She radioed the USS Whale SS-239 for assistance. The Whale arrived on January 16th and attacked the convoy, damaging two ships and sinking the Denmark Maru before retiring. In May of 1944, she was tasked with photographing the Peleu Islands and Palo ahead of planned attacks. From June 4th to July 7th, she successfully completed this task despite being under constant enemy air patrols. After this, she was sent on another special mission, this time to Tawi Tawi Sulu Archipelago. 
where she was to approach the beach and pick up a captain. He was taken to Brisbane, Australia. The Sea Wolf left Brisbane on September 21, 1944, reaching Manus on the 29th, carrying stores and enemy personnel headed for Samar. On October 3rd, the Sea Wolf was with three other American submarines when Japanese sub RO-41 attacked the Sheldon. All submarines were directed to give their positions to avoid confusion. The Sea Wolf inexplicably did not follow this order. Rowell's report states an airplane from the Midway marked the location of a potential enemy submarine with dye after spotting her resurface. The Rowell established sound contact with the submarine and received a message containing long dashes and dots, a message that did not resemble any existing recognition signals. As a result, the Rowell launched several hedgehog attacks which produced a large air bubble and some debris in the vicinity of the sunk Sheldon. This was thought to be RO-41, but Japanese reports do not mention this incident and the RO-41 was able to return to Japan after this date. On October 4th, the Sea Wolf was directed to report her position again and failed to do so. At this time, it was believed she was held down due to anti-submarine activity in the area. On December 28, 1944, she was announced overdue from patrol and presumed lost. She was struck from the Navy list on January 20th, 1945. With her sinking, 62 sailors and an additional 17 army personnel were lost. For her service in World War II, the Sea Wolf received 13 battle stars. By the end of the war, she ranked 14th in confirmed tonnage sunk, about 71,609 tons, and tied for 7th with USS Rasher and USS Trigger in confirmed ships sunk. Today, there is a commemoration in Sea Wolf Park on Pelican Island in Galveston, Texas. While it is possible the Sea Wolf sunk due to operational failure or other submarine activity, it is commonly believed the Rowell inadvertently committed an act of friendly fire. Friendly fire is defined as the firing of weapons from one owns forces or those of an ally, especially when resulting in the accidental death or injury of one's own personnel, according to Merriam-Webster. Friendly fire has been seen in nearly every war from every side. There were numerous incidents in World War II from the United States alone. On October 26, 1942, during the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands, USS Porter DD-356 was hit by an errant torpedo from a TBF Avenger. The torpedo bomber crashed during the battle, and the Porter committed to rescuing the pilot. When approaching the crash, the torpedo broke loose and hit the ship. The damage was enough to incapacitate the Porter, and she was abandoned before being scuttled by gunfire from the USS Shaw. She received one battle star before her loss in her almost nine-year naval career. On November 12, 1942, less than a day after the death of Frank Slater, the namesake of the USS Slater, his ship, the USS San Francisco CA-38, shot and damaged the USS Atlanta CL-51 during the Second Battle of Guadalcanal. At the end of her battle against the Japanese destroyer Akatsuki, the Atlanta was hit by 19 8-inch rounds from the USS San Francisco. The fragments killed many men, and the Atlanta was ready to fire back until she realized the non-Japanese hull profile. The hits rendered the ship nearly powerless and caused her to list slightly to port. Less than 24 hours later, around 1400, Captain Jenkins ordered her to be abandoned and sunk. All remaining men minus the captain and the demolition party boarded Higgins' boats. Ultimately, around 2015, on November 13, 1942, the Atlanta was sunk three miles west of Lunga Point. She was finally struck from the Navy list two months later, on January 13, 1943.
On January 8, 1945, the USS Colorado BB-45 was hit during a training exercise. After aiding in pre-evasion bombardment against Legayan Gulf on January 1, 1945, she remained in the area and participated in a training exercise on January 8. Accidental gunfire from an unidentified American ship hit her superstructure, killing 18 men and wounding another 61. She was to be repaired and assisted with the pre-invasion bombardment of Okinawa until May 22, 1945. Finally, on March 20, 1945, the USS Enterprise CV-6 was hit by another U.S. Navy ship around Okinawa. Over the course of the day, she managed to avoid significant damage despite attacks from Japanese bombers. Other ships drew anti-aircraft fire to protect her. During a near miss from a Japanese dive bomber, two 5-inch shells fired by another American ship slammed into her forward 40mm gun tubs, killing 7 and wounding 30. The resulting fire set off all 20mm and 40mm rounds in the gun tubs and threatened fuel and planes on the hangar below. Over the next 20 minutes, the Enterprise was forced to fight the fire and defend from repeated attacks from Japanese planes, but within 35 minutes the fires were out. The Enterprise was repaired within the next 10 days. Unfortunately, friendly fire is a common occurrence during war on all sides. However, acts of friendly fire do not diminish the reputation of these ships nor the reputations of the men who serve on them. The Rowell, like the other ships mentioned, are still known for their bravery in the face of adversity and their help in the Allied war effort. After the friendly fire incident on October 3, 1944, the Rowell continued its fight in the Pacific. On October 20th, she screened a carrier group and provided air support for the landings in Leyte, Philippines. Five days later, she participated in the Battle of Samar as part of Task Force Group or TAFI-1. She operated off Surigo Island, 130 miles south of TAFI-3, who were fighting the main Japanese battle fleet, which included the famed USS Samuel B. Roberts DE-413, which will be covered in an upcoming DE Classified episode. Taffy-1 sent planes to help fight Japanese bombers retiring from the Battle of Surigo Strait when they were attacked by six Japanese planes from Davao. This battle was punctuated by kamikaze attacks against USS Santee CVE-29. The Rowell saved one survivor from the USS Santee before Taffy-1 moved north to assist Taffy-3. However, they arrived too late to help. On October 26, Taffy-1 fought off another kamikaze attack with the Rowell attacking an enemy submarine. After the battle, the Rowell returned to the carrier formation and donated blood plasma and medical supplies to USS Sewanee CVE-27. On the 27th, she escorted the Santee to Maynes for her repairs and returned to Pearl Harbor on November 19th. In early January 1945, the Rowell joined anti-air and anti-submarine patrols for the landings at Langang Gulf, Luzon, Philippines. Later that month, she protected underwater demolition drills at Ulithi in modern-day Micronesia. In mid-February, she guarded transport to Iwo Jima and supported air landings on February 19th. On April 1st, she protected air landings on Okinawa before returning to Guam on May 11th. In July, she patrolled the Leyte Gulf in the Philippines and escorted the Hackett Bay CVE-75 to Ulithi. She remained in the Philippines and in August, she escorted three transports to San Pedro Bay. In September, she returned to Leyte Gulf, then Okinawa. After the war, she traveled to San Diego, arriving on November 6, 1945. She was decommissioned on July 2, 1946, remaining in the Pacific Reserve Fleet until struck from the Navy list on June 30, 1968. 
The next year, she was sold for scrap. On a lighter note, the USS Leader is lucky enough to have received a fairly substantial collection of USS Rowell artifacts, including the ship's punishment logbook from its commissioning through July 1946. I have compiled a list of particularly interesting offenses and punishments. To receive two hours of extra duty, one would have to be accused of leaving one's life jacket adrift or wearing their foul weather gear astray. To receive five hours of extra duty, one would have to use the war cruising telephone without authorization or fail to turn to, the act of beginning or returning to normal duties when required. For 10 hours, one would have to be caught gambling. If one wants 25 hours of extra duty, one could fail to wear a shirt and or a hat while on watch. And if one wants 200 hours of extra duty, one could, while performing their duty as a mail clerk, be tasked with converting $735.70 or $10,795.14 today into money order currency, but through a lack of care and neglect, lose that money. In the end, that's only $3.68 or roughly $54 today per hour. If one wants to only have bread and water for five days, one could sleep on watch during general quarters. For 30 days restriction to the ship, one could misappropriate three cases of beer for one's own use, especially if that beer was for the crew's liberty party. Speaking of liberty, one could be caught wearing their hat on the back of their head and wearing their cuffs of their roller jumped up by shore patrol and lose two future liberties. One could also fail to break out apples as specified on the May 30th, 1945 breakfast menu to lose shore leave for 10 days. The man who received this punishment apparently believed it wasn't enough, because just a week later he refused to get keys to the icebox to put salad away, resulting in him being tasked with completing an exam with marks of 3.0 or better within the next month. For being reduced to the next inferior rating, one man laughed at the remarks of a gunnery officer while at quarters. When asked by the gunnery officer if he thought it was funny, the man remarked, yes, I think it is. When told to fall out and go below, the man getting the last word says, That's what I wanted. If one wants to experience deck court, a court for minor offenses with one commissioned officer as a judge, able to hand out any punishment except discharge, confinement, or forfeiture of pay exceeding 20 days, one could mail a letter of obscene, lewd, and lascivious character, or one could miss the ship. If one wants a summary court-martial, a court with one commissioned officer able to hand out punishment up to one month confinement, hard labor, forfeiture of pay, and reduction in rank, one could attempt to remove one U.S. government bayonet, model 1943, and two 20-meter shell hulls with unexploded primers. For a general court-martial, with five members and a military judge similar to felony court able to hand out the punishment of death, one could violate censorship regulations. If none of these spark your interest, what about a man who received a warning for the unauthorized shipment of government property to the U.S.? Or the man who received stolen goods but only got the cryptic message of, no charge to prove? Despite my attempts at a lighthearted or even funny ending to this podcast, I hope you enjoyed this episode. While the USS Richard M. Rowell was not the most important ship or the most successful ship, she was a vital member of the United States Navy, and her crew should be honored for the sacrifices they made during World War II. All destroyer escorts have a story, and DE Classified is committed to sharing those stories in memory of these sailors and the countless lives they saved. 
Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. I'm Cassidy, and we'll see you next month when we declassify the USS Buckley.